0: Well, Tom's going to come and bring us our reading now from Matthew chapter
1: 16 well as Neil has just said the reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 16 and we're commencing at verse 13 and going through to the end of the chapter verse 29 this is about the confession of faith Peter's confession of Christ Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. I will tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose, loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. And from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Thanks
0: be to God. Well, good morning, folks. It's great to see you um, this morning as we consider this subject of uh, confession. There you have it on the screen. Last week, we thought a bit about a covenant, this idea of a commitment that we can make to help us to love one another. Uh, and this week, we're thinking about confession, a commitment to gospel truth. Again, another way we love each other in a way that we uh, love God. And these are things that we've been sort of talking about quite a bit in recent months in this whole discussion about membership trying to help us to see the responsibility we have as Christians, not just to live me and my faith with God, but our faith together before God. And so I hope we've been seeing that the things we've been reflecting on have been helping us to be committed to loving each other and being committed to the gospel truth that we want to uphold. And so this day we're going to be thinking about confession. So should we come before the Lord and let's ask for his help as we consider this wonderful passage together? loving father we thank you for the mouths that you've given us which don't just have to talk small talk to one another but can confess and profess wonderful truths of the gospel to a lost and broken world we thank you for great confessions of faith in history where men and women have stood on gospel truth and proclaimed it and we pray as we look at this passage together as we consider our responsibility as individuals And our responsibility as a church to be a confessing church. We pray, Lord, that you would speak into our hearts, that you'd convict us. That you would encourage us, that you would help us. That we might be a church that gives you glory in all that we seek to be and do. Amen. I imagine the majority of those who are here um, are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, If that's you, I'd like you just to have a ponder of the question that's on the screen. Why are you a Christian could be all sorts of different reasons we could give to that question maybe we could say there were wonderful truths that my parents or grandparents taught me when I was a little boy or a little girl Um, maybe we will remember our Sunday school or even the S Club here in this church and the profound impact that had on us from a very young age maybe it was a summer camp or a particular talk that convicted us Uh, maybe it was the example of another Christian who lived very faithfully, perhaps through a a long-term illness or a period of suffering, and their example really struck a chord with us. And maybe for some, God's Holy Spirit came upon you in a really powerful way and just kind of arrested you, and you couldn't carry on life your own way. It just sort of stopped you in your tracks and brought you to a saving faith in Christ. All sorts of different stories we could have of why we're Christians. Here's one thing, though, that perhaps we maybe not, don't give enough credit to. As you ponder that question, why are you a Christian, I wonder if you stop to think about the men and women through the centuries who've confessed gospel faith at great cost. Because whether we're aware of it or maybe not aware of it, people who've gone ahead of us are a major reason, maybe under God's sovereignty, why we're followers of Jesus. So we're going to spend a bit of time thinking about that. I'm sure you've heard the name John Wesley. John Wesley had a brother called Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer. And John and Charles and the American evangelist George Whitfield founded the Methodist Church in the 18th century. And John Wesley famously said this, What one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. If you just consider some of the issues that we're sort of grappling with in our culture today. Can you think in your heart or or mind of an example where perhaps a generation before something has been tolerated and now the younger generation are just simply embracing that thing as completely normal. Can you think of an example? See, it's happening all the time, isn't it? And this was John Wesley in the 18th century. See, if, for instance, there are things that God calls in his Word sin, things that offend a holy and perfect God, which we refuse to call sin huge impacts on the next generation if we tolerate certain things the next generation will just assume those things are okay and it's happening all around us but equally the things that we confess the things that we publicly profess when we do that it has a positively profound impact on the next generation but the things conversely that we fail to confess and profess can have a profound impact on the future generations in a negative sense Uh, or think of the words of Don Carson who's an American scholar Um, he here, very similar sort of phrase or quote but speaks of the subtlety of how truth can be changed if it's not confessed, he said this when one generation believes the gospel but doesn't confess it the next generation will just assume the gospel and the following generation will deny it have you seen any examples of that perhaps in our culture if you're perhaps that bit older and you look at the younger generation, you go, I cannot believe that this has become so normal now for that generation. Some of the responsibility for that could be those in their older genera- of the older generation who didn't do what we're thinking about today. And so I don't say that as a criticism. I don't say that because there aren't people here who haven't stood on truth, because I'm sure there have been. But just as an observation that if we just assume truth and we don't profess it, it can have a massive impact again on the next generation. Last week, as I tried to give a bit of a sort of um, culture analysis of where we're at as a culture, my conviction is that we're generally speaking as a culture, fairly anti-confessional. We don't really want to stand on truths because it's seen as very dogmatic and controlling. We don't really like the word accountability. We like to have a sort of privatized faith. It's me and God, but I don't really want other people to speak truth into my life. I certainly don't want people to challenge me because that would be very judgmental. I think we're living in a culture where, rightly so, we want to be deeply compassionate towards other people. But sometimes we can so emphasize that, that we don't even talk about obedience to Christ. Let's just love each other, whatever that means. And yet love in the Bible is robust, there's grace, but there's also truth. We're called to speak the truth in love. And uh, one of my reflections from last week is that truth is being undermined all the time. And what is, championing, uh, what is triumphing over truth in our generation is this idea of toleration and reason. What seems reasonable to me is now the absolute truth. And if something I don't like in God's word is not so palatable today, there's plenty of ways of explaining it away or saying this isn't culturally relevant today. Hugely dangerous. And I said last week I'd give you a couple of frightening statistics just to show the extent of where this is a problem. Here's one. Uh, Some of you will know Simon Barrington. He's the ex-CEO of Samaritan's Purse, the organization that does Operation Christmas Child the shoebox appeal that we're supporting um, over the next couple of months well Simon Barrington um, when he stopped being CEO of Samaritan's Purse he founded an organisation called Forge Leadership and he conducted some online research of Christians who are millennials so kind of people who will be reaching adulthood in the turn of the century people who are sort of born in the 80s and 90s and he conducted some research and the reason he put together Forge Leadership is this is his conviction he wants to raise up a generation of young leaders who are clear in their identity and beliefs and can make a real difference in shaping culture so his organization did loads of research in this country looking at Christians who are millennials people who work in the workplace and people who are involved in Christian ministry and this is the statistic that I read in the research and I took part in the research myself and this scared me 39% of the Christian millennials in this country who are interviewed said they did not believe that the Bible is the ultimate authority does that shock you? this, this isn't a secular uh, this isn't a secular survey this is Christian leaders in churches and in the workplace 39% but what's even more frightening is you look at the reason they had to give if you tick the box that said I don't believe the Bible is the ultimate authority they had to tick a box and then explain the reason why this is the reason hostile culture People who don't want to stand on the authority of scriptures, they said the primary reason is because our culture won't do that itself. And they feel, therefore, that if I'm going to uphold the Bible and uphold scripture, I'm going to be undermined, I'm not going to be relevant, I'm not going to be listened to. That statistic is scary, if you think about the future of the church. Really scary. And yet, it struck me that the Bible is full of truths that we are to affirm and errors that we're to refute. Let me put up on the screen quite a number of examples just to kind of illustrate this point. That this isn't just me as a young pastor who's passionate about truth just telling us to be passionate. This is what God's word teaches. Here's a few of them. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 14. Paul says to this young man Timothy, guard the gospel. What does that imply? The gospel needs protecting because there are so many people who will seek to distort what is gospel truth. 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul says to this young man, Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. Interesting, isn't it? A lot of people in our culture will say, watch your life, of course, because of the example you'll be, but just ignore doctrine because it's quite divisive and not very healthy. But it's not what Paul says. Watch your life and doctrine, what you believe closely. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul calls the people of God to build on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The idea that there is truth which the apostles and the prophets proclaimed and we're to build our church on that truth and not on any other truth. Uh, This verse we looked at in a sermon not too long ago, particularly the responsibility of passing on our faith to the next generation. That great declaration in Psalm 78 verse 4 and it's happening right as I speak now in S Club and it's a wonderful thing. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord what a joy that Jeff and Francis and their family and this church have told Chloe the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord and she's professed faith it's a wonderful thing Uh, 1 Corinthians 14 verse 40 everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way here's a, a context Paul's giving instructions to the church in terms of the way they're to organize themselves what we practice as a church is at least in part determined by what we believe just a couple more Galatians one of the earlier letters to be written one of the first churches to be established and Paul says I'm astonished That you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel And we might be tempted to think well, why does that really matter notice what Paul goes on to say? Which is no gospel at all if you don't preach Christ. It's not a gospel Really difficult in our culture Ephesians chapter 4 verse 14, there's this need for Christian maturity so that we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. You think of these Christian millennials who were involved in this forged leadership research. So many are being tossed around by a culture that says, you can't possibly believe this stuff anymore. No way. Look how outdated and irrelevant it is. And Paul says, no, the problem is not this. The problem is our maturity. And that's the reason we need to grow in maturity. And this is probably the most frightening, where Paul again speaks and says, the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine, biblical truth. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth. The Bible is full of positive things we're to affirm and challenges of what we're to refute. And as a church, we've got to consider the responsibility that we have. Here's a question for you. Actually, at the end of the day, whose responsibility is this? At the end of the day, it's our responsibility as a church. Every Christian, and this is what the passage we're about to look at, speaks into. Every Christian has the responsibility To stand for gospel truth in a culture that is undermining it left, right and center. So if you have a Bible there, please turn back to Matthew chapter 16. And we're just going to focus in on the first part of that reading that Tom read for us a few moments ago. From verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Well, if you know your geography and that helps you, there's a little arrow on the screen pointing to Caesarea Philippi, kind of north of the Sea of Galilee. Caesarea Philippi was a place famed for pagan religion. And that's a photo I took in Israel in 2015 in Caesarea Philippi. And what you can see carved into the rocks and that cliff are these kind of arches where these false gods were placed for the pagan people to come and bow down and worship. Caesarea Philippi was named Caesarea Philippi after the Caesar and Philip Alexander who together were uh, statements of human power and authority, and so Caesarea Philippi prided itself on its authority, prided itself on its pagan religion. It was famous for it. There's also a great ravine at Caesarea Philippi that we were pointed to. It's a very deep and dark ravine, and in Caesarea Philippi they call it Hades, which means the gateway to hell. The idea is, this is a place that prides itself on kind of defiance of who God is and worshipping false idols. It's an astonishing place to go to and there are these little kind of um, plaques up to explain what was there before. Uh, and it's a fascinating place. Well, consider this. Why did Jesus choose this place where he asked Peter and his disciples the question you see there in verse 13, who do people say the Son of Man is? Son of Man being a name given that Jesus gives to himself why here in a place full of pagan religion why here and of course we know the story they replied some say you're John the Baptist others say Elijah others one of the prophets but what about you he says who do you say I am verse 16 Simon Peter answered you are the Messiah that's the Jewish name for the Greek name Christ it means the same thing the king or the anointed one you are the Messiah the king the Son of the Living God. And then Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Just worth noting there. If you've put your trust in Christ, it's not because you're clever and you've figured it all out, it's because the God of the universe, through the creative power of his spirit, has shone his light into your heart. Open your eyes to who he is. And every testimony is a miracle of new birth. And here he says, the fact that you're able to make this great statement, Peter, is only because God has been gracious to you. And open your eyes to the gospel. And then he goes on, verse 18, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. What an amazing statement from Jesus. Now this particular verse has caused all sorts of sort of controversy um, through church history. What is this rock that Jesus is referring to? The Roman Catholic Church would say, this rock is Peter. He is the head of the church. But we know that Christ is the head of the church. He is the cornerstone. He is the rock on which this church is built. So when here he says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. What is the rock? It's the confession that Peter has just confessed. You are the Christ. That is the rock on which Christ builds his church. In other words, Jesus Christ builds his church through confessors, to confess truth that's what he does but then people say yeah but it says you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church here Jesus is using a bit of a sense of humour Peter or Cephas another name for his name is rock and he's saying the rock is the confession you've just spoken but isn't it interesting Peter that I gave you the name Peter which means rock to remind you to keep confessing truth and then we know that Peter denies Jesus later in his life, doesn't he? But then what does Jesus do by his love and grace? He reinstates Peter later. Peter, I will build my church on confessors who confess truth, even confessors who fail me. But by my grace I restore, I will keep building truth. <laughs> doesn't that give you and me a mere bit of hope? How many times have I been ashamed of the gospel? And he hasn't, Jesus hasn't said, Mark, you can no longer be a pastor. Mark, you'll never be an evangelist again. He just brings me back to the gospel and says, I'll keep using you because I'm gracious. And that's exactly what he does with Peter. The point is, Jesus is saying, I will build my church on confessors who confess truth. And then look at verse 18. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The gates of Hades, a metaphor for death. What he's saying here to Peter is, death will not defeat the church, Death cannot defeat Christ. Why? Because he died and he rose again. And so if you are prepared to be a confessor who confesses truth, death will never, ever, ever overcome you. Because Christ has defeated death. That is how Jesus will build his church. Not on our strength and our prowess, but on the confession of Christ. But I hope you're encouraged. Jesus led his disciples to this place and it was here that he said to them who do people say I am interesting you heard in the reading what goes on next Jesus predicts he's going to die and what does Peter say oh no no you can't die you're our king you're going to conquer the Romans you can't possibly die and he goes of course I have to die because as I die I'll defeat death hence why Jesus said to Peter get behind me Satan that influence that might have stopped Jesus going to the cross get away from me because I've got to die so that you can live. See friends. What you do with Jesus Christ. Really really matters. I said at the beginning most here are Christians. And i asked you the question. What is it? Or what's the reason why you're a Christian? Here's a little challenge to those of you who would say that you're not a follower of Christ. What you do with Christ matters more than Anything. Because one day we're all going to face death and there's one thing that you and me and no doctor can do. Ultimately have any control over death. So whether we want to ignore Jesus now or not, the reality is one day we'll have to stand before him. We'll have to answer to him. What we do with Jesus matters so much. But you take this encouragement that Jesus gives. I will build my church. Look at the astonishing grace of God in how he does this. Have a look at verse 19. He says to Peter, straight after he's professed faith in Christ, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now what's he saying? Have a think about what a key does. Keys are there for security, aren't they? Keys, when you lock the door, keep you inside safe and lock out intruders. So what on earth is he saying when he says here to his disciples, as, he, as it were, he says to his church, I will give you the church, the keys of the kingdom. What's he on about? Well, the clue is in what comes next. He says, whatever you bind, think of uh, binding or tying something up, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, untie on earth, will be loosed in heaven. That's difficult language, but what he's saying is You, the church, have a God-given authority and responsibility to protect the gospel and to refute that which distorts the gospel. Whose responsibility is it? It's the church's. What you bind and what you loose. You see, some things are to be bound, to be forbidden. As a church, as individuals, we're to say, that isn't the gospel. And that isn't a behavior that gives honor to Jesus Christ. And we're to call it out, to get rid of it. If your eye causes you sin, cut it, uh, gouge it out. If your hand causes you sin, cut it off. It's metaphors for dealing with sin. But Equally, some things are to be loosed, allowed. Friends, this is the gospel. That is a characteristic, a behavior that adorns the gospel. It's a good thing and encourage it. And it's our responsibility as the church, the people who've been given the keys of the kingdom, to say that is not behavior that honors God. That's not the gospel. That is the gospel. That is behavior that honors God. And it's our responsibility together to do this. So to ask the question again, who's responsible for this church remaining faithful to the gospel? Answer, you and me, all of us. You are the Christ and on this rock I will build my church. Confessors who confess faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to think a little bit about a statement of faith. In some denominations, they're called creeds, coming from the Latin word credo, meaning I believe and I trust. Um, Sometimes we call it a confession. What that is, is a, a creed, a statement of faith, a confession, is a summary of doctrinal beliefs, a summary of Christian truths that we will confess and which we will seek to uphold. And these have been used all down through the centuries. What do they do? Well, they're things that we regularly teach in church that bind us together. They're things that help mark us out as people who stand on the gospel and not on anything else. They're truths that we um, affirm as a church, truths that we seek to affirm in each other, and we commit to living out. Uh, On the way out, I'm going to give you a copy of the statement of faith that we believe as a church, the statement of faith that as members we've committed to. And it's a statement of faith that's used by many, many other churches across the country. And by UCCF, the University and Christian Colleges Fellowship, and many other churches as well. Just to give us an idea of some of the things that we want to stand on and we want to believe. And perhaps this week you could take that away and you could pray about it. You could give thanks for those truths. But I want to give us just a few examples to encourage our hearts of where statements of faith, where confessions, where creeds have been really significant. Because we don't live in a cultural vacuum and we're not where we are out of, by, by mistake, but actually... As I said at the beginning, one of the major reasons that you and I are in a Christian is because men and women have gone before us. And they have responded faithfully to the challenges of this morning. And we need to give thanks for them. So let's not be ignorant of history. Here's a few examples just to encourage you. Perhaps the first statement of faith, it comes in the Bible. And these will be familiar words that we often read when we take part in the Lord's Supper. Paul says, what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. He's not saying other things aren't important, but this is the thing that matters most. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. This was one of the very first statements of faith. And Paul, what did he do? He passes it on to the church in Corinth. So they can stand on this truth. Well, come to the 3rd century, 325 A.D., the Apostles' Creed, a creed that was written by the apostles, those who knew Jesus, who were sent by him. The Apostles' Creed is read a lot more in Anglican churches and other denominations, but it's a shame because it's a wonderful creed. Notice the three clauses in it. I believe, I believe. I'll just go through it to help us. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. What an amazing statement to Confess in a culture that prides itself on atheism. We're all just here by accident. No, I believe in God, the creator. You can be an atheist if you like, but I'm not going to be, and I've got good reason not to be. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. And is seated at the right hand of the Father and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. It's saying, I believe that the Christian faith is a historical faith based on facts. You can read about them in the scriptures, you can go to the British Museum and you can see artifacts that give you confidence that the Bible is authoritative. And then he goes on, the Apostles' Creed, to say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Catholic there means universal The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. What a great thing to confess today where so many people just want to ignore death and then flounder around when they face death because they have no answers to the big questions of life. But we can say, no, I believe in life everlasting because Christ has died for me. The Apostles' Creed has been used down through the centuries. This was written centuries ago. And yet, it still has a profound impact on so many of us. 381 AD, the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of the same essence as the father and why was that really significant in 381 it was significant because in the church there was a great big debate about Jesus Christ was he eternal in other words has he always existed and was he divine was he God and here was a chap called Arius and he didn't believe those truths he didn't believe that Jesus was divine he wanted to sort of divide up God who is father son and spirit okay God the father can be divine but God the son isn't God he's just God's son and then along, along comes an amazing man called Athanasius, and he challenges Arius and says, No, Jesus is divine. Jesus is eternal. You can't split God up into three parts. Father, Son, and Spirit is not like a three leaf clover. I'll have this leaf, but not that leaf. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. And Athanasius challenged Arius. And wonderfully, I love this because Athanasius became known, a famous phrase about him, Athanasius contra mundum it's latin for athanasius against the world he kind of stood and said i don't care if i'm the only person on this planet who will profess faith that jesus is divine but i'll do it because i believe it if athanasius hadn't challenged arius the church would be in a very different place over the divinity of christ see why are you a christian In part, it's because men and women have gone before you and they have professed faith at great cost to themselves. And it's a wonderful thing not to be ignorant of these things, but to rejoice in them. Just give you a few more examples. The Reformation, we spent quite a bit of time thinking about this uh, last year because it was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. The Reformation was a period of kind of political and religious upheaval in Europe, primarily surrounding what is the gospel and a great debate between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. If you want to listen to those sermons and the evenings we had on the Reformation, you can get them on the website. But just a few examples of really significant things that have had a profound impact on the gospel that we believe in this church. You might remember that picture. That's Martin Luther, the famous German monk, who nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg. And what this is was essentially a kind of like provocative blog post of the 16th century where he says, these are 95 statements that I believe and I want to cause people to have debate about them. And he says, I'm prepared to stand here by the gate, by these 95 theses, and I'll debate with you and I'll prove to you why I believe them. Hugely important at the time. The context was a battle for the gospel. In 1530, you had the Augsburg Confession that becomes one of the great confessions that's had a profound impact on the Reformation and on what we believe as a church. And what came out of the Augsburg Confession was 28 statements. 21 of them were truths that were affirmed by the church. Seven of them were errors that were refuted. And the Augsburg Confession sort of summarizes these things and says, this is what we believe and this is what we don't believe. It's the binding and loosing of of Matthew 16 that we just looked at. 1546, the Westminster Confession. The Westminster Confession came out of a five-year debate... ...in the Anglican Church... ...between 121 Puritan ministers... ...and they were debating truths... ...and what was at stake at the time... ...the backdrop was the um, English Civil War... ...and the authority of Scripture was at stake... ...and what does the Westminster Confession confess? It talks about the Word of God... ...being the rule of life and faith... ...the rule of life and faith... ...in other words... ...if we're to know how we're to live our life... ...we come to God's Word... ...and we don't go anywhere else... ...and that confession had a massive impact on the Anglican church at the time and it's had a massive impact on pretty much every mainline reformed denomination ever since and if you read confessions of different churches they have great resemblance to the Westminster Confession and then just the last one 1571 the 39 articles of the Church of England that have been adopted and and put into what's called the Book of Common Prayer that many Anglican churches will use each week on a Sunday At the time Henry VIII was the king of England Um, He was excommunicated from Rome Because he challenged some of Rome's thinking on the word of God And here are just two examples of uh, some of the articles in the 39 articles Article 6 says this Holy scripture contains all that is necessary for salvation The Roman Catholic Church doesn't believe that Certainly didn't then And article 7 says this The Old Testament is not contrary to the new For both in the Old and the New Testament, everlasting life is offered to mankind by Christ, who is the only mediator between God and man, being both God and man. The 39 Articles of the Church of England is a wonderful statement of Christian faith. Now, if you forget, if you're not into church history, you forget all those examples, don't worry, it's the principle that really matters. What is the point? The point is, ever since the first apostles... There have been creeds, there have been statements of faith, there have been things that have been affirmed that both bind and loose the gospel. Things that affirm the Christian faith and uphold it and things that refute error to protect and guard the gospel. And what the confessions of faith do, what these creeds do is in many ways they act a bit like those um, bars you put up if you're not very good at bowling when you go temping bowling. What do they do? They help you to bowl straight these confessions of faith act a little bit like cat's eyes on the roads you know what, you, how, how important these are when you drive around here at night, they keep you on the road and that's exactly what confessions of faith do, they keep us on the straight and narrow so that the gospel of Jesus Christ that we know and that we profess never changes and we stand on those truths whatever the cost is to us and we need to be united in the church to continue because one day someone will stand in the pulpit like this, in a hundred years time 200 years time a thousand years time and maybe they'll refer to a statement of faith that was written in our generation Or refer to a man or a woman who has confessed faith publicly at great cost to himself And they say it was those people from Non Baptist Church Why not? I mean Martin Luther was part of a church The people who wrote the Augsburg Confession, the Westminster Confession were part of a church So why them and not us? There may come a day in this country where we have to stand on gospel truth at great cost to ourselves And I'm going to do it. And I know there'll be many people here who'll stand with me. And it's a wonderful thing by God's grace. So as we come to a close, I want to encourage us that confessions of faith help us to stay faithful to Christ. They've always been important in church history. And they always will be important in church history. And so we come back to those wonderful words that Peter confessed and professed in Caesarea Philippi surrounded by pagan gods, surrounded by godlessness surrounded by that great ravine, the gateway to hell it was there that Peter wonderfully by the grace of God said you are the Christ and because Jesus is our saviour and he's the only way to God, he says I am the way, the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me Friends, we've got to see that confessions of faith are a wonderful gift from God to help us to keep doing what Peter did and confess that Jesus is the Christ. That is the truth that will change this generation. And that is the truth that will continue to make a profound impact on our world if we proclaim it boldly and if we live it out in some of the statements we were considering last week with our covenant. Should we pray together and just give thanks to God for his incredible grace to his church down through the centuries? Just in a moment of quiet, why don't we recall in our hearts a person or maybe one of those statements of faith that has meant something very special to us down through the years. And let's give thanks to God for that person or for that gospel truth. Our loving Father, we thank you for the men and women in our lives who've had a profound impact on our faith. Who've taught us the gospel from an early age. Who've modeled the gospel to us through their consistency. We thank you for the people through church history who have stood on gospel truth. Some were burned at the stake just down the road in Oxford. Because they were not prepared to compromise on what the gospel was. We think of many um, ex-Muslims who come to faith in High Wycombe through the ministry that Amjad and Sarah and others are involved in. And they lose everything when they confess faith in Christ. Lord we thank you for the example of so many who encourage us to keep standing. We thank you for some of the great historical statements of faith. That may have been a reminder to us this morning or maybe something we've considered for the first time. But we thank you that people were prepared to make great sacrifice to help us to stand on gospel truth. And Lord we live in a culture that in many ways is Caesarea Philippi. We live in a culture that is surrounded with godlessness. Where the name of Jesus is at best a swear word if not ignored completely. And yet you call us to be like Peter. Peter. And to confess that Jesus is the Christ. Father forgive us where we're ashamed of you. Forgive us where we're more worried about our reputation. And our comfort than we are the honour of Jesus. But help us Lord to take courage. That you use broken and weak people just like Peter. He may have professed faith here. But he disowned the Lord Jesus. And yet in your grace you reinstated him it was on that confession that you are the Christ that Jesus builds his church and Lord we thank you that we can have every confidence that you will continue to build this church not because we are strong but because the Lord Jesus Christ is alive and rules and so we pray that we would always be a church that confesses faith in him help us to stand on biblical truth Lord we pray against this prevailing culture as Revealed in this Forge Leadership Survey where so many Christian millennials don't believe in the authority of Scripture anymore because the culture around them tells them that's ridiculous. Give us, Lord, courage. Give us, Lord, conviction to trust that your word is always truth. And Lord, we thank you for your grace, your grace that strengthens us when we feel weak in our witness, your grace that holds us secure. And we thank you for that wonderful truth that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Amen.